bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. I hope that you and your family are safe and well. At Novogratik, this is the start of our 16th week since implementing our firm-wide mandate to work from home. Over the past couple of weeks, we've reopened two offices at about 10 to 15% of capacity. While nearly all of us are still working from home, Novogratik hasn't missed a beat in our ability to continue serving clients. Now, I'll start this week's podcast with highlights from last week's Novogratik Affordable Housing Friday Forum. Many of you joined us for the forum. We had more than 250 participants in that virtual event, which was the first in a series of three events that will address low-income housing tax credit issues. Now, I'll share insights this week from last week's forum on key low-income housing tax credit proposals that Congress may consider this year or next. I'll also discuss how low-income housing tax credit investment can be affected by CRA reform as well as the presidential election. After that, I'm going to talk about a recently introduced clean energy bill called the Green Act. This legislation would extend the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit, Production Tax Credit, and other incentives. I'll then share some good news about a final rule that would allow banks to invest in and sponsor qualified opportunity funds. This final rule could significantly boost bank investment in opportunity zones. And I'll close with an announcement from HUD on the release of its biennial report on worst-case housing needs. So, if you're ready, let's get started. Novogratik, this past Friday, hosted the first of three Affordable Housing Friday forums. These forums are a virtual event series on the state of the low-income housing tax credit. Each of the three Friday forums addresses a different aspect of the low-income housing tax credit. These different perspectives are designed to help low-income housing tax credit owners and practitioners make informed decisions in the months and years ahead. Now, last week's forum focused on the legislative outlook for the low-income housing tax credit. In other words, we looked at what low-income housing tax credit provisions are included and could be included in major legislation this year. Today, I'm going to talk about three of the most likely vehicles to enact low-income housing tax credit provisions. Then I'm going to discuss a few other important issues that will affect low-income housing tax credit investment, namely the CRA final rule in the 2020 election. But first, low-income housing tax credit legislation. A major vehicle that has been introduced was the Moving Forward Act, or HR2. This is the infrastructure bill. You may have seen some of my tweets or some of the breaking news emails from Novogratik. I described the main provisions of HR2 in last week's podcast. So I'm going to briefly summarize some of the housing-related provisions here. Now, HR2 would provide an indefinite minimum 4% rate. And according to Novogratik's updated production calculations, a minimum 4% rate could help finance nearly 126,000 additional affordable rental homes through the year 2029. HR2 would also increase the annual low-income housing tax credit amount starting next year in 2021. The bill would also temporarily reduce the 50% test, and that's the finance buy test for bond finance housing. It would lower it from 50% to 25%. Here, Novogratik estimates that reducing the 50% finance buy test to 25% would free up about $94 billion in bond cap over the 10-year period 2021 through 2030. And if all of that freed bond cap were used for rental housing, 
that would finance between 700,000 and 1.4 million additional affordable rental homes, depending on the availability and scalability of gap financing. Another provision of the Moving Forward Act would create the Neighborhood Homes Investment Tax Credit. Now, the Neighborhood Homes Investment Tax Credit is a single-family tax credit similar to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. This credit, though, would help finance the revitalization of single-family homes in distressed communities. Now, the tax credit legislation was originally introduced last year in the House, and then just last week was introduced as standalone legislation in the Senate. Now, in addition to the infrastructure bill, there are two other potential vehicles through which we might see low-income housing tax credit provisions this year. One is phase four COVID-19 relief legislation, and the other is a year-end tax bill, an extenders bill. We'd expect phase four COVID-19 relief legislation to pass, to be finalized towards the end of July, could spill over to August in the Senate. And in terms of year and tax bill, we do expect there to be an extenders bill in a lame duck session. And oftentimes, at the after a presidential election, even when the presidency or the Senate or the House are going to change control, there can be meaningful legislation passed. So look out for that year-end tax legislation session. Now, aside from discussing these three vehicles for enacting low-income tax credit provisions, once again, that's an infrastructure bill, COVID-19 relief legislation, and a year-end tax bill, with the COVID-19 relief legislation being of those three, the one most likely to ultimately pass with a year-end tax bill being second most likely in infrastructure least. During my session last Friday, we also discussed the OCC's final rule on the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA. Now, CRA-motivated banks make about three-quarters of all the long-term tax credit investments made in the nation every year. The OCC's changes to the evaluation of CRA has alarmed affordable housing and community development advocates, as we've discussed in detail in prior podcasts. Now, the new CRA rule eliminates the investment test, and the investment test was a major motivator for banks to invest in the long-term housing tax credit. The new rule moves to a dollar-volume-driven evaluation framework. And under this dollar-volume-driven framework, many qualifying activities will get banks the same CRA consideration. Also included in this uh, qualifying activities are activities that previously did not receive positive CRA consideration. What this means is the final rule makes it much more appealing for banks to take lower-risk, lower-impact investments that require them to retain less capital if they can hit the same CRA targets. So as my co-panelist said, though, the CRA issue is far from decided. And I say that, and I'll explain why I say it's far from decided in a moment. At Novogratic, we've actually not observed any notable effects of the CRA rule on investor appetite, at least not yet. We think the reason why we haven't seen any notable effect is due in part to the fact that investors are waiting to see the results of this year's presidential election. Why? Well, the expectation is that if there is a change in the administration, then the so-called OCC final rule would be revoked. All that said, if you've actually observed something different, if you've seen an effect of the new CRA rule on investor equity pricing already, please let me know. Send an email to cpas at novaco.com. Now, during our Friday forum, we also had another point of discussion, which is always the presidential contest and how the presidential election can affect the long-term housing tax credit. I've just mentioned how the results of the presidential election could affect the durability of the new CRA rule. We also wanted to note that if elected, former Vice President Joe Biden 
said he would seek to expand the long convincing tax allocation authority by $10 billion per year. On the other hand, the Trump administration has proposed cuts over the years to HUD and to sources of gap financing, such as the Community Development Block Grant Program and Home Funds, among others. Now, the main housing-related program supported by the Trump administration, I should note, is the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program. They've really leaned in there. Well, during our session last Friday, in addition to talking about some of the legislative, regulatory, and political factors affecting the low-income housing tax credit, we included an update on HUD multifamily programs. We were fortunate to have several HUD leaders join us for that discussion uh, in the, uh, later in the day. And one thing we learned was that HUD is planning to publish a notice this week on what happens when the COVID-19-related moratorium on evictions expires. I'll share any relevant insights from that notice that we expect this week in next week's podcast. Also, if you haven't heard already, HUD also discussed an extended deadline for all financial statements until September 30th. That means that any statements due between now and September 30th now have a September 30th deadline. This extension applies to all submissions, whether they're audited or unaudited. I should also note, of course, that if you need assistance with your financial statements, please call Susan Wilson in our office in Austin, Texas. I'll include Susan's contact information in today's show notes. Now, our HUD panelists during their session also shared that their REAC property inspections for all public and Indian housing, as well as all multifamily properties, are on hold until further notice. REAC, of course, stands for, it's an acronym for Real Estate Assessment Center. Also, they noted that the INSPIRE demonstration program is similarly on hold until further notice. And INSPIRE, N-S-P-I-R-E, is also an acronym, and it stands for National Standards for the Physical Inspection of Real Estate. So let me close here by saying thank you to all the panelists who shared their expertise and insights with us on Friday. A lot of great information was learned. Thanks also to all of our attendees who joined us to make the first forum such a success. Now, in case you're wondering when the next two Friday forums are, well, the next Friday forum will be Friday, July 10th. Obviously, we're skipping this Friday because it's the 4th of July holiday. The July 10th Friday forum will focus on the long-term tax credit, debt, and equity markets. Our panelists will discuss issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and how they're affecting low-income housing tax credit lending and investing. July 10th will also feature a bonus panel on the future of affordable housing in California. Now, I mentioned in recent podcast episodes that there are some interesting opportunities and challenges for affordable housing right now in California. For example, California is allocating up to $1 billion, that's right, $1 billion in federal disaster long-term tax credits. This $1 billion was allocated to California as relief after the California wildfires in 2017 and 2018. These disaster allocations will be awarded in three rounds, with the first application deadline tomorrow. So July 10th will be the second of the three Friday forums focusing on debt and equity. Our third Friday forum will be the following week, July 17th. That third part of the series will discuss COVID-19 considerations for loan commencing tax credit compliance and underwriting. All of that said, I invite you to register for the next two Friday forums to secure your spot. I'll include the registration link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Now let's turn to renewable energy news. Last week, Thursday of last week to be precise, 48 members of the House of Representatives introduced the GREEN Act. And GREEN is an acronym for Growing Renewable Energy and Efficiency Now Act, the GREEN Act. The legislation includes broad provisions to extend the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit, Production Tax Credit, and other green incentives. 
Legislators released a discussion draft of this bill last November, but they waited until last week to introduce it. Many of its provisions are also included in H.R. 2, the House Infrastructure Bill that I described earlier. Now, the Green Act would extend the solar investment tax credit at 30% through the year 2025, before then beginning a phase down. As you may know, the credit is currently in a phase down. Investment tax credit is worth 26% this year and will drop to 10% by 2022. The legislation would also make energy storage technology eligible for the investment tax credit. Think batteries. Now, the Green Act would also extend the production tax credit for wind at 60% through the year 2025. The production tax credit is 40% this year as part of a phase down. Under the Green Act, the credit would stay at 40% through the end of 2020 before going back up to 60% in 2021. Now, the bill contains many other provisions, including a provision that other technologies like geothermal would get an extension of the 30% investment tax credit. The Green Act would also ensure that offshore wind facilities that elect into the investment tax credit would be exempted from the existing phase down. The bill further contains a provision to revive and expand the Section 179 Cap D Energy Efficient Commercial Building Deduction. That change would increase the maximum deduction per square foot and extend the deduction through 2025. And the bill would also increase the Section 45 Cap L Energy Efficient Home Credit from $2,000 to $2,500 per home and extend the credit through 2025. And that's a credit we see often combined to help finance low-income housing tax credit properties. Now, the bill also addresses renewable fuels as well as carbon sequestration. I should also note the text of the bill, as well as a summary and a section-by-section review, will be included in today's show notes, and I will tweet out a link as well. You may have questions. I had a lot of questions when I first saw the bill. If you have questions about renewable energy tax credits, this bill, or other, please contact my partner, Nat Ng. I'll include Nat's contact information in today's show notes. I do want to share some additional news before closing this week's podcast. I'll start with a group of federal regulatory agencies that finalized a rule last week that allows, or at least confirms, that banks can invest in and sponsor qualified opportunity funds. Now, back in January of this year, these five agencies that are responsible for implementing the Volcker Rule proposed amendments to implementing regulations. The Volcker Rule, you may recall, generally prohibits banks, bans banks, and bank holding companies from participating in what are called covered funds. Covered funds are typically hedge funds and private equity funds. There was a question as to whether banks, under the Volcker Rule, would be allowed to invest in or sponsor qualified opportunity funds that are private equity funds. The Volcker Rule does have an exception for investments designed primarily to promote the public welfare. So the question was, does the Volcker Rule exception, uh, based upon the public welfare rule, apply for investments in opportunity funds? Well, the final rule that was issued last week clarifies that opportunity funds do satisfy the terms of the rule's public welfare investment exclusion. In short, banks can participate in qualified opportunity funds without violating the Volcker Rule. For proponents of opportunity zones, this is obviously very important. Banks have never been expected to be the primary investors of opportunity funds because most banks or many banks don't have significant programmatic capital gains. However, banks do have some capital gains and the ability to invest those in qualified opportunity funds likely means greater investment in opportunity zones. Banks also may invest in opportunity funds 
to receive Community Investment Act, or CRA, credit as allowed under the OCC's revised CRA regulation released in May. So we could see some significant investment from banks in opportunity zones now that this rule is finalized. Now, this final rule, I mentioned five regulatory agencies. You might be wondering what those five regulate, regulatory agencies are. They are the Security and Exchange Commission, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC, the Federal Reserve, as well as the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Now, we're going to discuss this and other Opportunity Zones topics on July 15th. That's when we're holding the Novogratic 2020 Opportunity Zones Virtual Conference. I will share the link to that conference in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. And I should also note, if you have any questions about your Opportunity Zone investments or a possible development in an Opportunity Zone or forming a fund, please call a Novogratic office near you. We have Opportunity Zone experts in every office. So I also have information from HUD to share. HUD has published its report on worst-case housing needs using data through the year 2017. Now, HUD has generally issued this report every other year since 1973. The report is further evidence of the need to expand housing resources, like HUD funding and the long-term housing tax credit. HUD's report focuses on two major groups of renters, those households with very low income that do not receive government housing assistance and pay more than half their income in rent. The other major group is those that live in severely inadequate conditions. The report concludes that worst-case needs have risen sharply over the years. The HUD report provides evidence that housing developers and property managers are finding it difficult, increasingly difficult, to provide decent rental housing at rates affordable to vulnerable households. I'll provide a link to the report in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Well, that brings it to the end of this week's report. But before I close, I do want to share a reminder. Tomorrow, July 1st, is the nominations deadline for the 2020 Novogratic Journal of Tax Credits Awards. We present awards in three categories. The first category is our Developments of Distinction Awards category. This category is for low-income housing tax credit and HUD finance rental properties. Our second awards category is for community development entities that make impactful new markets tax credit investments. This is called the Community Development Quilickies of the Year Award. Quilickies being, of course, the acronym for Qualified Low-Income Community Investments, part of the statute. And the third award category is for historic rehabilitation developments. Now, nominating a property or investment for a Novogratz Award is a great way to highlight the great work that you're doing, as well as the success of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, New Markets Tax Credit, and Historic Tax Credit. Now, you can nominate your own development or investment, or you can nominate those of others. You can also submit more than one nomination. Now, the nomination cutoff is tomorrow, Wednesday, July 1st. I'll share the links to the pages that show the benefits, criteria, and requirement of each award, as well as how to enter. I'll include them in the show notes and tweet them out as well. And even if you can't submit a complete application, or I should say nomination, please submit the nomination forms by the end of the day tomorrow. Well, that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. And do have a fun and safe 4th of July weekend. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. 
Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.